I'm going to read from the Bible. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to start at verse 44. If you want to follow, it's on page 980 on the Bibles in the chairs. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, and he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man went out and found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, speak to us uh, by your spirit, speak to us for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Two parables this morning about the kingdom of heaven, or in other times Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. He's referring to the same thing. And uh, a kingdom is where the rule or the reign of a king is known and acknowledged. So Jesus is talking about what it means uh, to have God ruling and reigning in your life. And so often with Jesus, he tells us not in just sort of straight teaching, uh, but in stories in a couple of parables. And thankfully, these parables are not too hard to understand. Begin with the story of the treasure hidden in a field. Now, when, when treasure is found these days, it makes the news. It's a, it's a big event. There'll be an article in the Daily Mail. There'll be something on uh, BBC News uh, telling the story of somebody who's stumbled across a kind of uh, Roman hoard or uh, some buried treasure or perhaps you know, there's a bit of intrigue. Where's this money come from? Is it stolen goods? What's happened? But there is a historical precedent for treasure being hidden in the field. And although... Um, Unusual. It was not that uncommon for somebody to find some buried treasure in a field. In Jesus' day, money was a medium of exchange. It wasn't a commodity in itself. You used it for transactions to buy and sell other stuff. So you didn't often have that much left over. But if, if you did, if you're wealthy, then you didn't give it to a bank. Uh, capital wasn't invested. You used it or you would hide it. You'd hide it in your house if it was uh, secure, or more often than not, you might bury it somewhere on your land. And of course, life happens. There are wars, there are illnesses, there are accidents. So it wasn't uncommon for somebody who had uh, buried some treasure to die or to be killed. And as they died, so the location of that treasure was lost forever. So maybe there is a hired hand working a farm. He's going along with the plough, he's preparing the field, and uh, he catches something with his hoe, he looks down, he explores, and there he discovers some buried treasure. This happened in Jesus' day. And so Jesus tells us what might happen in such an event. This man goes and he sells everything he has. If he's a laborer, he's not a person of means, he's not got much money, uh, sells everything that he's got and enjoy. He goes and buys that field. He liquidates his assets, he gives up everything he has and he does it for the knowledge that the field that he's buying 
has treasure hidden within it. He knows there's far more in that field than that which he has to give up to acquire it. And then Jesus tells a second story, and this one is a story about a man with means, a wealthy man in contrast to our poor laborer. He's a pearl merchant. He's a man of capital. He's on the hunt for pearls, buying and selling, trading them. And in Jesus' day, pearls were much more valuable than they are today, and they're not cheap today. They were a highly prized asset. They'll be traded to be made into women's necklaces. We know that divers fish for pearls in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. Ancient reports tell of uh, pearls worth many millions of pounds in today's money. Cleopatra, the most beautiful and wealthy woman of her day, was reputed to have a pearl worth 25 million denarii. And a denarii was a day's wage. And the maths is too hard for me, but some of you can work it out. And so here we have the merchant. He's experienced and he's well-versed in collecting precious pearls. He knows their value. And he finds one of exceptional quality. Great size and great value. So he sells everything he has. He sells all his other pearls. He sells his pearl shop. He gives up all of his wealth to acquire just this one pearl. Why? Why sell all the others just for this one? Well, because what he gets in return is far greater greater than that which he gives up in exchange. Jesus is telling parables, and parables are extended metaphors to get across a point. These aren't case studies in business ethics. Of course, it's not fair that the owner of the pearl originally doesn't know its price, or that the the man who owns the field doesn't know there's treasure within it. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's using these stories as examples to give the thrust of his message. And that's this. The kingdom of God is of infinite value. The kingdom of God is of infinite value. Both of these men, the poor laborer and the rich pearl merchant, have an epiphany. They understand that before them is something of beauty and of worth that others miss. They see something that has been hidden from others. There's a moment of revelation, a moment of insight, a moment of clarity. They see the worth of the thing before them. And in the metaphor, that thing is the kingdom of God. That thing is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And it's of infinite worth. And for these two men... There's no half measures to receive the thing that they desire. There's no halfway house in receiving the treasure that they covet. There's no incremental inching in. There's no trying out the treasure to see if you like it. The pearl is not offered on sale or return. 
That's because the kingdom of God is an all-or-nothing thing. And in our stories, these men risk everything. They sell everything to acquire the beautiful thing they see before them. So it is with the kingdom of God. It's freely offered, freely given, and costs everything to receive. Jesus said this to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. Denying yourself and taking up your cross could mean giving up things that mean a lot to you. Could mean giving up things that you love. Could mean saying goodbye to things that you've had for a long time. Things that have been given to you. Things that have shaped you. You mean saying goodbye to relationships that are valuable to you. People who are important to you. There's no half measures in receiving the kingdom of entering into the kingdom. Finally, these two men realize that the benefits, the rewards that they receive, beggar the cost and the sacrifice that they have to give to receive it. The poor laborer and the rich pearl merchant, they receive far more than that which they have to give up. They receive far more than that which they give up. Their sacrifice is put into perspective. It's a no-brainer for them. This is hard, yes, it's difficult, yes, it's costly, but it is a no-brainer. We're told that the, the laborer, in his joy, went and bought the field. In his joy, traded in the poor things that he had for the riches he was to receive. As he makes the trade, as he makes the exchange, he receives joy. Not when he receives the treasure, not when he banks that which he finds. They experience joy as they make their sacrifice in the knowledge of what is on its way. And of course, we can't take this too literally. The kingdom of heaven cannot really be bought. It's not a treasure to be traded like a pearl. Jesus is not saying that you can earn the kingdom of heaven by the thoroughness of your commitment. He's not saying that you can buy it. Remember, we're talking about his rule and his reign in our lives. What he's saying is this is how you receive the kingdom. This is how you enter into the kingdom. This is how you make me Lord and King of your life. This is what you do. You bring your life under my rule. You commit your life to me. You bring everything before me. And in exchange, I invite you into my kingdom. I invite you to know my rule and my reign, my presence in your life. This is how you can experience the joy and the benefit and the blessing of him reigning supreme in your life. 
Jesus is saying there's nothing that you can do to earn the kingdom of heaven. But there is something you must do to receive the kingdom of heaven. And that is, you must humble yourself. You must let go of everything that holds you. You must let go of everything that you hold in order that you in turn might be held by the one who loves you, the one who redeems you, the one who will never let you go. So what do we need to do? What does this mean for us? Well, there's a book called Give Up Your Small Ambitions. I think that's one of the things that we need to do. We need to give up our small ambitions. We need to see again the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the kingdom of God. See again what it means to live under his rule and his reign. When we first approach God, young or old, whether we've grown up in church or new to church, when we first approach God, when we first begin to explore things of faith, usually we know that we need something. There's a, there's a drive, there's a compulsion, there's, a, there's an inner sense that there is something that we need. And perhaps God is the answer. Perhaps church might help. Maybe Jesus could be part of the solution. But we come knowing that we need something. We want some help. We want some peace. We want some joy. We need some strength. We're looking for some purpose. And as we become more involved in church life, as we explore the faith more deeply, so we begin to realize more and more who Jesus is. So we get a sense of the the shape of the kingdom, what it looks like. And as that starts to happen, as the the kind of revelation, the insight takes place, so we realize that actually our needs, they're, they're far greater than we first thought. Our needs are far greater than we ever imagined. It's not that we need just a bit more peace or a little bit more joy or a little bit more strength. It's not that we need just a little bit of fixing up or that we're just a little bit broken. We realize that our our needs are far more than that. Some of you may know in the Proud of Household, we we have many, many pets. And we've had many pets over the years. At one time, we had 25 guinea pigs. That was a nightmare, let me tell you. At the moment, we've got seven chickens. Uh, We've got a dog over the years. We've had daigie. We've had guinea pigs. We've had hamsters. You name it. Uh, We've had it in our house. And when you've got children, there's always that moment that that happens, especially, well, it happens when you've got, got pets, especially when they're young. There's a little knock at the door. And a little figure comes in, and they look a little bit white, and there's a few tear marks down their, down their face, and they, they come forward, and they, they hesitantly hold out their hand. They say, my hamster's not very well. And you say, ooh, 
And what they want you to say is, well, I've got a plaster. We've got a little ointment. There's a special pill that we can give them, and they'll be fine. I say, my hamster, my hamster's not very well. Say, okay, let's have a look then. And then you see the hamster. <laughs> and you say, my dear child, my dear child, you need a new hamster. We don't need just a little bit of fixing up. We don't need just a little bit of mending. Our need is far greater than we could ever know. We need a new start. We need a new life. We need salvation. Complete new beginning with God. God's offer to us is far greater than we first realise. Our ambitions are far too small. Our, Our view of the kingdom is far too narrow. Jesus offers far, far more than just some peace, some strength, some joy, a bit of purpose, a splash of colour on a grey day. Jesus offers so much more. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus offers new creation. Jesus offers life to those who are dead. Jesus offers more than just a bit of grace. He offers forgiveness of sins. He gives the right to become children of God. He offers the gift of the Spirit to come and live within us and cry in our hearts, Abba, Father. He offers to become closer than our dearest friend. He offers us a love that can never separate us, uh, that means that we can never be separated from God. He offers us more than just a, a bit of help when times are difficult. He offers us free access to the throne of grace. Bold we approach the throne of grace that we might receive mercy in our times of trouble. He offers us more than comfort in our afflictions. He offers us the gift of life. A life that begins now and lasts on into eternity. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that these jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one that you thought of. He's putting in a new wing here, an extra floor there. He's building towers. He's extending courtyards. You thought you were being made into a a nice little cottage. But Jesus is building a palace. A palace fit for a king. A king. 
because he intends to come and live in it himself. Our ambitions are far too small. God demands far more from you than you ever imagined, and he will give you far more than you could ever believe. Verses from 1 Corinthians 2. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So we come to Pentecost. I'm going to read uh, from the book of Acts. It's on page 1093. From Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violet wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They, say what, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? After he rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, Jesus met with his disciple for a period of 40 days. We read of what he spoke to him about in those times uh, in a passage before this in Acts chapter 1. He appeared to them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, this kingdom I've been talking about this morning. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem But wait for my gift, the Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And those few days come. And on the Feast of Pentecost, the disciples are gathered together and they're waiting and they're praying just as Jesus told them to do. And the Holy Spirit himself comes upon them. And he fills them, and they're overwhelmed by him. What seem to be tongues of fire separate and come to rest on each of them. And all are filled with the Holy Spirit. And all begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Paul speaks of the gift of tongues in terms of heavenly and earthly languages. 
He said he spoke of the tongues of angels and of men. Most often today, tongues is a, a heavenly language that requires the spiritual gift of interpretation. But sometimes the gift of earthly languages is given, and so it was on the day of Pentecost. No interpretation is required. Each hear in their own language the wonders of God. Jews from across the world hear the gospel in their own language. Peter stands and preaches, and 3,000 are converted on that day. So the second promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 is fulfilled. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid them from his sight. Why did Jesus tell the disciples to wait? Why did he choose the day of Pentecost as the day when his spirit would be poured out upon them? Well, Pentecost was a a feast that the Jews would celebrate every year. It was one of three feasts where they would all come from wherever they lived across the Roman Empire and they would uh, come back to uh, Jerusalem. And it was a, a time of pilgrimage. And Pentecost took its name because it was the 50th day after the Passover. The Passover where they remembered God's uh, deliverance of them from their enemies. The Passover when a lamb was sacrificed as an offering. And of course the Lord Jesus is the Paschal Lamb. Jesus is the one who gives his life for the sins of the world. Gives his life and takes it up again. And at Pentecost, it was the the festival of of harvest. The first uh, crops would have grown. And the Jews would take the first fruits of the harvest, they would bring them to Jerusalem, and they would make an offering, a a sacrifice in the temple for them. And in doing so, they would be thanking God for his provision, thanking him for his generosity, just as we do in our harvest festivals today. And so imagine the scene. Jewish people from around the world, they've, they've brought their sheaves of wheat, they've brought their, their harvest things, they bring them to the temple and they give of their first fruits to God and they thank, they thank him for his provision. And on that day, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. The Holy Spirit fills Peter and the disciples and they're empowered to speak of God's greater provision of God's greater generosity, of God's love for his people. If you read the sermon uh, that Peter stands up and preaches, he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, who they were part of, his crucifixion, but who doesn't hold it against them, but loves them and calls them uh, to repentance. Repent and believe every one of you, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
Jesus invites us to enter into his kingdom. His kingdom, which is far greater than we could ever imagine. We cannot buy our way in, we cannot earn our way in, but we receive it by just bringing all that we have and all that we are and laying it at his feet. The kingdom is entered into by humbling ourselves. That's what repentance is. It just means, means humbling. So I've got my life wrong. I want to get it right. I want to line my life up with you, yours. I want to be a citizen of your kingdom. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my lord. I want you to be my savior. And the kingdom is a treasure. And the kingdom is a gift. And part of that treasure, part of that gift, part of the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives is that he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence to come and dwell within us. To baptize us, to fill us, to initiate us into the life of the kingdom. Not to give us just a little bit of strength, but to strengthen us. Not to give us just a little bit of grace, but that we might know the reality of true forgiveness. Not to help us feel a little bit less guilty, but to break the hold of the things that bind us and trap us. To cleanse us of our sins and give us an assurance of his forgiveness. Not to give us just a little bit of meaning and a little bit of purpose and a little bit of colour to our lives. But to make us a new creation, a new child of God. Know that we are loved and made whole and uh, accepted by him. To give us a new life, a spring of living water that, that wells up within us and overflows to empower us to share the good news of Jesus with others. That's what Pentecost is about. And of course, Pentecost didn't end 2,000 years ago, but continues on today. God still meets with his people. People still enter into the kingdom. People still discover his grace and the reality of him in their lives. And one of the joys of uh, preparing uh, folk for confirmation is hearing their stories of how he has met them and uh, delivered them and freed them and equip them and strengthen them. This promise is for us too. He's far more willing to give than we are to receive. His grace is far greater than the things that would hold us back. Let's stand our leaders in prayer, and then Christine is going to lead us in worship.